Hello and welcome to Asia Matters, the podcast where we discuss the biggest stories happening across this fascinating region. I'm Andrew People. Well, South Korea's President Moon Jae-in has just been in Washington for talks with President Joe Biden, in part to discuss how to deal with North Korea. The last few years have seen plenty of drama around one of the world's most intractable geopolitical issues. Biden's predecessor, Donald Trump, twice held historic talks with North Korea's young leader, Kim Jong-un, even as Pyongyang continued with periodic missile tests and its customary saber-rattling. So, has there been any real progress on the Korean peninsula? And what is the best and most realistic way forward now? Is it time, for example, to give up the goal of denuclearizing North Korea? And is there any chance to improve relations against the background of tensions between the US and China? Well, to discuss these questions and more, we are again joining forces with the Center for Security, Diplomacy and Strategy at the Brussels School of Governance for the second in a series of episodes. CSDS is home to a rich expertise on Asia with its Japan program and career chair and is working to enhance understanding of Asia's security matters in Europe and to promote greater engagement between the two regions. Indeed, joining us from the school today is its career chair, Ramon Pacheco Pardo, who is also an associate professor at King's College London. Hello to you, Ramon. Hello, thanks for having me. And we're delighted as well to have Sumi Terry with us. Sumi is a senior fellow at the Centre for Strategic and International Studies. Her latest post in a distinguished career following Korean issues in the worlds of intelligence, policymaking and academia. Hello to you, Sumi. Thank you for having me. Glad to be here. Thank you. And thank you both for joining us. Let's kick off then by looking at this meeting in Washington. What were your main takeaways from the talks between Presidents Biden and Moon, Sumi? Well, first, I would like to say that I have participated in summit preparations before, and I have some idea of how much work is involved. And it looks like by all indications, the summit was quite successful. This was, of course, the 10th meeting between President Moon Jae-in and a U.S. president, uh, his first with President Biden. President Moon is the only second foreign head of state to visit the Biden White House following Japanese Prime Minister Suga, which clearly indicates the Biden administration's priority really is rejuvenating alliance relationships in Asia. And I thought all of it went well. I really liked in particular, you know, President Moon participating in the Medal of Honor award ceremony for Colonel Puckett, a Korean War veteran. I thought whoever came up with that idea was a great idea. It was a hugely symbolic moment. Very moving to see both presidents spontaneously kneeling down next to this elderly soldier. And this ceremony highlighted the strength of the U.S.-Rock alliance, obviously forged in blood. And just the rest of the trip, I will talk about it more. But There was a lot of deliverables that came out. And I think the main point here was showing that Biden White House is committed to the alliance, highlighting these alliance relationships, desire of the Biden administration to work very closely with Korea, Japan as a counterweight to China. And one of the key deliverables of the summit, of course, was South Korea's promise to invest. The numbers kind of vary, but I think about $35 billion to the United States. And that should buy really goodwill for South Korea with the American public and show how the U.S. also benefits from the alliance. Ramon, you've written that the summit was further evidence, actually, of South Korea's tilt towards Washington in recent months and away from China. Can you explain why you believe that? 
well, I think there has been this discussion in Korea, but also within the Moon government as to what the policy is going to be moving forward. And, and in the past, there was a little bit of talk about strategic ambiguity, but that's not the case anymore. And actually, you don't hear South Korea talking about it anymore. The Chinese ambassador to Seoul has been very clear. He thinks that the statement that was issued by the two presidents was anti-China. I wouldn't call it anti-China, but Korea has indicated that it's going to cooperate very closely with the Indo-Pacific policy uh, of the U.S. The Quad was mentioned as well, and even though I don't think Korea will join the Quad in the coming months, there is clearly a scope for cooperation and this discussion about human rights, the South China Sea, Taiwan was included in the joint statement, which is something that Korea in the past wouldn't have mentioned. There's also talk about vaccines. Clearly, there is this move towards greater cooperation with the U.S. One of the reasons, obviously, is the change in president in the U.S. Uh, many allies, not only Korea, were a little bit wary at the way that the previous president, President Trump, handled relations with allies. And now we have a president in the U.S. that, uh, as Sumi was saying, clearly values his alliances or the U.S. alliances, not only with Korea, but also with Japan. And this has helped those in the Korean government who had doubts about to what extent support the U.S. policy towards the region to start looking at the potential benefits for Korea itself of cooperating with the U.S. and other countries in the region, those that are part of the Quad. But for example, from a European perspective, now there is talk about cooperation between Korea and Europe, uh, the European Union, in the Indo-Pacific as well. And this is not explicitly anti-China, but clearly has a China component. Thank you. I mostly want to look forward in this podcast and not take too US-centric a view, but just for a moment, can you both give an assessment of where we are following the Trump years, the meetings between Trump and Kim, all the razzmatazz that we saw around that, all the theatre? How do you assess the legacy of all that? Uh, sort of big question, but Sumi, do you want to have a go at that first? Sure. I don't want to just give this kind of knee-jerk response to criticize everything President Trump did. Mm. But it's really hard to deny that North Korea's nuclear missile program have not, I mean, they have been ongoing, right? Actually, the North Koreans have been making pretty impressive progress, despite President Trump having met Kim three times. North Korea's nuclear weapons and ballistic missile capabilities have only grown, both in terms of quantity, quality, right? North Korea has today amass 30 to 40, possibly up to 60 nuclear warheads. They continue to churn out fissile material to make about a dozen new weapons per year. So it's hard to say they have made any kind of progress in terms of denuclearization. And when you look at the past October 10th parade, which celebrated the 75th anniversary of the Korean Workers' Party, I mean, they paraded everything. What have we not seen, right? There are two massive sea and ground-based ICBMs. We saw more North Korean technology more than ever before. Just name it, we've seen it. One of the things we saw was, of course, Hwasong-16, this new strategic weapon, which has not only a range capable of hitting entire American mainland, there's this very large advanced payload section. So it's quite concerning. And the message here the North Koreans are sending is that the Kim regime, they're trying to show strength and defiance, that the U.S. and the international community will not be able to stop their nuclear missile program. They have been making incredible progress on their program, on their delivery system. And all of that impressive breakthrough, despite extremely difficult domestic situation they're in right now. The message is that time is on their side, not on the side of the United States. In fact, Kim Jong-un himself said that when he gave a very quite emotional speech. Or to say, to answer your question, you know, I don't think we're in a good space right now. And we have not 
accomplish too much if our goal is still denuclearization. Ramon, is that an assessment that you share, essentially, of the Trump legacy? I think so. I think the main issue is that we did have the three summits, but we didn't have real diplomacy. You didn't see the Trump administration and North Korea sitting down and trying to reach an agreement, and then the president of the U.S. and Kim Jong-un could sign up too. Sumi was talking before us, he has been involved in preparing uh, summits. It's not something that you can do on the, on the plane. As some people said that Trump was doing when he came to the Hanoi summit, for example, or even the Singapore. If you look at the Joint Statement issued after the Singapore summit, uh, I mean, you could argue there wasn't that much thought into it, including the way in which the different issues were listed in this uh, statement. And there's another aspect to it that when we thought there might be some diplomacy taking place, which was when the U.S. and North Korea met in Stockholm. Delegations from the two countries met in Stockholm. The meeting lasted a few hours. The delegations went home and nothing came out of it. Uh, so at the end of the day, in my view, it's not only the nuclear program of North Korea developing further under Trump, but also the fact that there was no diplomacy at all. So we have to start from a scratch really now with the Biden administration. Interesting. So... This is where we are, a bit of a worrying situation, as you were saying, sue me. You recently wrote an article arguing that one way forward now could be for the US and others to aim for something less than full denuclearization of North Korea and to try and enter into negotiations about some form of arms control instead. Can you elaborate on what you were saying in that piece, please? Sure. First, I would say that I worked pretty hard with the editors of Foreign Affairs to have these words arms control not on the title, if you notice, because I just think arms control is such a trigger phrase for a lot of Korea watchers, and I didn't want, want to turn off the readers before they actually read the piece. But basically, what I was arguing with my co-author was simply that given that the North continues to make this impressive progress on nuclear and ballistic missile program that I just talked about, and given that it would not give up nuclear weapons, and I don't think anybody really who follows North Korea will say that they are in a position or they will ever give up nuclear weapons. The point is, should Washington explore whether even without a comprehensive agreement on denuclearization, that it would be in the U.S. interest to pursue negotiations that will result in an interim freeze deal, which seeks to limit North Korea's nuclear weapons capabilities as an initial step in order to manage the problem and at least slow the growth of the nuclear North nuclear arsenal, that the Biden administration should or could explore whether it could freeze or partially roll back North Korea's nuclear capabilities. How would that work in practice? I mean, let's talk about some of the practicalities here. I mean, given North Korea has in the past shown such reluctance to allow outside inspectors, for example, how could the US and others trust that North Korea was fulfilling its commitments in in that sort of scenario? You're 100% right. And that's the challenge. And we say in the piece that Washington should test whether this approach could work. But we specifically warn that this strategy is not guaranteed to succeed, as you point out, I think totally far from it. And a good agreement has to verifiably reduce the threat from North Korea's nuclear weapons, but without endangering the security of our allies, South Korea and Japan. How do we do this without giving any unearned concessions that the North Koreans are demanding? They're demanding sanctions relief. We say in the piece that Biden administration must not pursue an arms control deal at any cost, 
But the point of it is still worth testing. And I think the Biden administration, when you look at their North Korea policy review, is basically sort of there in terms of saying, okay, we are not going to just go for this sort of, you know, big bang. That's the whole, it has to be denuclearization. It has to be all or nothing. But we'll see. I, I agree with you. It's, it's going to be hard. And what's led you to the conclusion that a sort of big bang approach can't really work? Is that based on the sort of evidence of what happened under Trump, this sort of transactional president who thought he could potentially do an all-encompassing deal to solve this issue? Yes, in part. I mean, he met with Kim Jong-un three times and it did not work. But it's beyond that. It's beyond Trump. I mean, we've been doing this since the Clinton administration in early 1990s. We tried almost every approach. We had a bilateral negotiations and agreed framework. We had Bush's multilateral six-party talks. And, you know, we also had agreements with North Korea, not only 1994 agreed framework, but during the Bush years, 2005, 2007, with strategic patience of Obama for two terms. And we tried almost everything. So we know that North Korea's nuclear program is here to stay, and they're not going to give it up. So the question is, are we going to be okay trying to at least manage or reduce or roll back the program and the threat? Ramon, how do you think the US's allies would respond? I mean, it's not just an issue of trust in, in North Korea, I guess. I mean, the likes of Japan and South Korea might worry that the US is coming to some agreement with North Korea that would mean less threat to the US, but it would still leave a threat to countries like those that are closer to North Korea, where missiles could still reach and cause lots of damage and destruction. What do you think their reaction to this sort of approach might be? First of all, it will depend how the US manages any potential deal. If there is consultation with the two allies, with Korea and with Japan, and they understand what the strategy of the U.S. is, and not only consultation, but, you know, if Korea and Japan are going to be involved in the implementation, because obviously there would need to be some concessions to North Korea, I think they could be on board. It is true that what is interesting is that when you talk with Korean Japanese policymakers, they are the first ones that want denuclearization, right, of North Korea. So this is not only about the U.S. wanting denuclearization, but it's of the two countries in the region that fear the potential negative consequences of North Korea becoming, well, it has become a de facto nuclear power, but retaining its nuclear capabilities. That's a difficult political question to solve. And that's why I think the Biden approach so far has been quite good, because during the policy review process, there was consultation with both countries, with, with Korea and with Japan. And I mean, talking to Korean policymakers, they say, well, I mean, the contrast with the previous administration was night and day. Right? So, so they felt involved. They had input. If we have an arms control deal, which there is a negotiation process with North Korea, but South Korea and Japan are part of discussions, they would be buying from the two of them. And, and politically, it probably would be easier for them to sell this agreement to a domestic uh, audience. I think more in the South Korean case, because obviously there are the considerations like inter-Korean reconciliation, for example. But also in the case of, of Japan, I think it would be possible to get the buying of the Japanese government and the Japanese government explaining to the population why for the time being, because this would be an interim step, as uh, Sumi has said, why for the time being, this is what can be achieved with North Korea. But what's complicated, I mean, just if I can jump in for one second here, but what's complicated is that from Washington's perspective, it might make sense for us. What, what makes sense for us is to pursue initial efforts to limit North Korean capabilities that could pose the biggest threat to U.S. security, right? And those are capabilities that Kim might consider giving up because they have not yet mastered them. So for example, 
prioritizing on delivery systems rather than on nuclear warheads themselves. For example, the Biden administration could, you know, we, we can say hey, we want a deal to limit or prohibit development of long-range solid fuel missiles, multiple re-entry vehicles, and ICBM warheads, because from Washington's perspective, mastery of these capabilities would enable North Korea to launch missiles faster with less warning and more they could evade U.S. missile defenses. But again, the problem here is that, you know, for the agreement to be successful, back to your point, it has to not endanger the security of allies. So we really need to have particularly Japan on board to say that they're okay with this idea, at least to begin reducing the threat. Sumi, you also said that it's important that North Korea doesn't earn any unearned concessions here, i.e. it doesn't get rewarded for bad behavior. So what could the US and its allies offer to North Korea to get it to agree to some kind of weapons reductions or, or a freeze or whatever? So this is this again won't be easy because what Kim Jong Un wants, and he has made it very very clear, is that he wants significant sanctions relief. And if this is to be a serious deal, then that can basically put verifiable limit and verifiable is a key word here on North Korean's nuclear capabilities. Then the U.S. could offer incentives such as you know waiver of U.S.'s unilateral sanctions or the removal of some UN sanctions on North Korea's exports or oil imports. But I think what's important here is that we must insist on some sort of a snapback mechanism similar to the one contained in the Iran nuclear deal in case North Korea cheats. I mean, it's not in case. To me, it's, it's almost certain. Of course, China and Russia may oppose doing so, particularly after, I would say, you know, how the Trump administration abused the provisions of that Iran deal. But we need to think about what else we could offer. Even the Trump administration considered declaring an end to the Korean War, allowing exchange of liaison offices. I think the President Trump was ready to offer those things even during the Hanoi summit, restarting into Korean joint projects. But ultimately, North Koreans value sanctions relief, I think, above anything else. So we need to sort of think about that. But we need to also insist on a snapback mechanism. Ramon, you've written that an arms control approach like this could actually allow more space for inter-Korean reconciliation between the North and South. Can you explain why you think that? Well, I think there are two issues here. I mean, the, the first issue is that, as uh, Sumi was saying, we will have to, the international community, not only the US, will have to give something to North Korea as it takes steps towards implementing arms control. Now, also, there is a verification process if this comes to happen and potentially rolls back is nuclear and missile program. And I think it is clear that not only the current administration, but policymakers in South Korea, even those in the conservative party who might be more center-right, so to speak, would be willing to move forward with inter-Korean economic reconciliation to begin with, and also to have uh, cultural exchanges, of course. So take these steps that would allow for the enmity that we still have between the two Koreas to change, to move towards a situation in which exchanges become more regular between both of them. And I think with an arms control deal, we would open the door for the possibility of this happening because without a deal, clearly this is not going to happen. The sanctions are going to be in place and this will prevent inter-Korean reconciliation process, uh, as I said, starting with the economic component. And secondly, also, because I think politically, this would change the calculus of many South Koreans who, we shouldn't forget, are very skeptic of North Korea. 
they think that North Korea doesn't want reconciliation, never mind reunification, that North Korea wants to survive in its current form and wants to keep its nuclear weapons. Now we have an arms control deal, then we have a process of reconciliation taking place, which is more extended in time than the one that we had in 2018 that basically stopped after the Hano summit. Then I think more South Koreans, not only liberals, but also conservatives will start thinking, well, maybe North Korea is serious about reconciliation and we can move this process forward because we shouldn't forget that many South Koreans, especially younger South Koreans, don't want to pay. They don't want to pay North Korea to reconstruct its economy. They don't want to pay North Korea for giving up its nuclear weapons program. So with an arms control process, not only an agreement, but a process of implementation of the arms control deal, I think more South Koreans would be on board with trying to improve relations with North Korea. What about how this might go down politically in the US? What are your both of your thoughts there? I mean, wouldn't, for example, the Republicans might lay into this saying that, you know, the Biden administration had gone soft on North Korea if it stopped short of pursuing full denuclearization. What do you think of that? Well, I mean, first of all, I think that the ultimate goal will always be denuclearization. So I think this deal would have to be presented as an interim deal, also a realistic deal as a first step towards trying to reduce the threat of North Korean nuclear weapons for the US, not necessarily for the Allies. The Biden administration has been clever in saying we're going to build on the joint statement in Singapore in 2018 because that was signed by a Republican president. So they say, well, our starting point is something that a Republican president that is still beloved by many Republicans, actually, by many voters and by many Republicans in Senate and Congress. He is actually presenting this as the starting point. That agreement actually includes denuclearization as a goal. So it might be difficult. There might be criticism of the Biden administration if it goes down this route. But there will be ways in which it could actually sell the deal as something that builds on what a previous Republican president had been doing. Sumi, your thoughts here is the breakdown of bipartisanship in the US, even in foreign policy these days. Is that something that could hobble any deal like this or is it something that could be surmountable? I think it's surmountable just because it will be very difficult for the Republicans to argue post-Trump that Biden has gone soft for all the reasons that Ramon just talked about, this builds on the Singapore summit. And I mean, come on, after all the exchange of so-called love letters and being in love with each other, with Trump and Kim Jong-un, I mean, it'll be rich for the Republicans to argue this. And the Biden administration will not be recognized North Korea as a nuclear weapon state. They still maintain that denuclearization is the ultimate goal, at least rhetorically. And so this will be presented as an interim deal. And to be honest, this is not so different from the past even including Trump. I don't think Trump was going to have the all or nothing deal. He was never going to get that. So they were always going to have some sort of an interim deal that builds on another deal and so on. So no, I don't think so. On this issue, I think it'll be very difficult for the Republicans to argue that Biden has gone soft. What about the calculus now on the North Korean side? What do we know about its current circumstances, the extent to which it's suffered from the pandemic? What do you think they're thinking? I mean, who knows ever, but What do you think they're thinking in Pyongyang right now? We have seen over the past few months since the pandemic started that the number one worry of Pyongyang is really the COVID-19 pandemic. And I think we have seen, starting with reports for those who were living in Pyongyang before they had to leave, that this led, for example, to food shortages, uh, even in the capital. 
We know that there's aid waiting in the border between China and North Korea that is not making its way through because the North Koreans have shut down the border. So I think this is a starting point that for the next few months, we're going to see North Korea shutting down itself from the outside world. At some point, obviously, they will have to reopen. And now there is talk about some of the vaccines being sent to North Korea through COVAX and some of the diplomats that have left. They're thinking maybe in autumn, maybe next spring, we can go back. So I think this will be the starting point to understand what is going to happen in the short term. And I think this is actually going to affect the calculus of North Korea. But on the other hand, some analysts have said, and, and I do tend to agree with them, that this could be an opportunity as well. North Korea, we all know, doesn't like being dependent on China, economically, politically. And North Korea runs the risk if the border remains closed for a longer period of time. And it doesn't have a sufficient number of vaccines of being dependent on China even more economically, being dependent on China for vaccines. And that's something that I'm sure the North Korean leadership actually hates, right? Everybody who knows Korean history, they know how Korea, and never mind North Korea, they don't like to be dependent on foreign powers. They want to be independent. And I think this could be an opportunity. And we have seen how the Biden administration has been indicating this. The Biden administration has been saying that this could be an area for cooperation with North Korea, healthcare, vaccine. So there is a challenge, very clear, but there might be an opportunity as well. Of course, it depends on North Korea taking the political decision to go down this route. Sumi, what are your thoughts here? I mean, what, how do you assess at the moment the position of the Kim regime and its potential willingness to deal with the outside world, deal with the US and South Korea and so on? I mean, Kim Jong-un has made some economic reforms in the last few years, hasn't he? How are those going, for example? Before I talk about the reforms, I would just say, first of all, that North Korea had a very tough year. You know, these preventive measures they took because of COVID really shut down the border with China and all of its economy. And I think the regime is still taking this COVID thing very seriously. That's impacting their eagerness to return to talks. They said they're not going to attend the Tokyo Olympics. They said no to World Cup qualifiers and so on. In terms of the reform, you know, in fact, there are no signs at all that they are really opening up or reforming. In fact, the signs are that North Korea is moving away from the reform measures or whatever they there are. It seems to be cracking down more strongly, for example, in the Changmadang private markets. When you look at the Eighth Party Congress, which was held in January this year, there was a lot of rhetoric hinting at re-centralization of control over state-owned enterprises. So I don't see them reforming. They remain quite paranoid about COVID. And then there was also delay in vaccine deliveries to North Korea. There was this global initiative to deliver 1.7 million doses of the AstraZeneca vaccine to North Korea. That has been postponed due to lack of technical preparedness of the country. So, you know, the situation is not looking great. And I think at the end of the day, they are also, in terms of returning to talks, they're sort of in a wait and see mode. They've just seen what happened with the summit between Biden and Moon. There were some positives uh, that came out, like the declaration that the Biden administration is seeking to build on the Singapore agreement and Panmunjom declaration. There were some agreement on broad principles, but there needs to be details. Again, from the North Korean perspective, I don't know if they're going to see whatever came out of the Biden summit and the Biden policy review is so necessarily bold or new. It probably doesn't look like that from North Korean perspective because they wanted sanctions relief, but there's no talk of anything like that. I'll also add, you know, things like vaccination, agreement to vaccinate South Korean soldiers. 
that might be not necessarily good news for North Korea because what you know that means to North Korea is that maybe combined military exercises could take place later this year. They also don't like the news of terminating U.S.-South Korea bilateral missile guidelines, right? That now South Korea may pursue the development of a longer range, more sophisticated missiles. So there's a lot of things to not like. So they will see and we'll see what they ultimately decide and which direction that they will go. Have you been surprised then that the North Korean regime hasn't been a bit more provocative towards the new U.S. administration yet? Uh, maybe I'm missing something, but it doesn't seem to have, you know, done the sort of missile tests and so on that you might have seen in the past with a new U.S. president? Well, short range missiles they've done on testing. But yes, I mean, if you look at them historically, like just look at their behavior historically, I mean, returning to a campaign of provocations, missile testing and so on, it literally can come down to 4.5 weeks on average in terms of either pre-election or post-election. They've done so when Obama came into office, when President Trump came into office and so on. I think it's too early to say they're not going to do that. I think they might return to testing in the months to come. But I think this past year has been an interesting one also because we have the COVID factor. You know, it's interesting to see how that might have played some sort of a role. But I do think that Kim Jong-un is more or less trying to see, first, they were waiting for this Biden's North Korea policy review to come out. And then now in the aftermath of U.S.-South Korea summit, now we'll see what they make of all this in the coming weeks and months. We've touched a bit on the role of China as we've been talking. So let's talk about that a little bit more. What do we know about its current attitude towards North Korea and how the various different factors are playing in here? Obviously, the broader tensions with the U.S. right now probably influence its approach. What's your feeling, Ramon, about where China is on North Korea right now? Well, China has indicated that this is one of the issues in which it could cooperate with the U.S. At this, there is an agreement on the goal, which is the nuclearization of North Korea, but the approaches are quite different. China made clear, even during the Trump administration, that it thought North Korea had done enough to get sanctions relief, and that by imposing a moratorium in its long-range missile test and nuclear test, the U.S. should have provided Pyongyang with, with sanctions relief. Of course, the moratorium is not in place anymore. That's what North Korea has indicated, Kim Jong-un. But I, I do think that at the very least, because there is agreement between the U.S. and China on the ultimate goal, there might be a scope for cooperation. And in any case, if we want to address the North Korean nuclear issue and relations between the two Koreas, and potentially there is talk about a treaty being signed, Obviously, China needs to be involved in the discussions. And I would argue as well in the implementation of any agreement that, for example, provides North Korea with economic support in exchange for an arms control deal. China would have to be involved in these discussions. So I, I, I do think that it still plays an important role, having said that the U.S. and North Korea and the two Koreas, when it comes to denuclearization on the one hand and reconciliation on the, on the other hand, will have to be the driving forces. Sumi, your thoughts on China's role right now? It's, it's just interesting because China's, just step back a little bit, like in 2017, we actually saw China implementing sanctions, right? Uh, surprising. We can talk about why that was, whether they felt really spooked by President Trump's bloody nose talk or whatnot. But, you know, China, the relationship with North Korea has significantly changed post-summit. So pre this whole summitry and diplomacy, while China 
was major patron ally trade partner of North Korea, you can say Xi Jinping's relationship with Kim Jong-un was not all that great, to be honest, right? Xi Jinping even didn't meet with Kim Jong-un, if you remember, while he hosted former South Korean President Park geun He visited South Korea, uh, but he didn't meet with Kim Jong-un until Trump decided to meet with Kim Jong-un. And there were a number of reasons for that. They were not necessarily happy with what was happening with North Korea, like after the execution of Chang Song-tae, assassination of Kim Jong-nam, you know, six nuclear tests and you know, missile tests. China was not quite happy. That's why we actually saw in the fall China implementing U.S. sanctions against the Kim regime, which surprised a lot of Korea watchers. But now, you know, with all the symmetry and shift to symmetry and diplomacy, it's quite different. And I'm concerned that China and Russia's compliance on UNSC sanctions regime is considerably weaker. And when you look at UN panel of experts, their reports, they talk a lot about how North Korea was able to circumvent UN sanctions and shipping and trade and how North Korean vessels are hauling coal and oil to China and engaging in ship-to-ship transfers and so on. So I remain concerned. And now you add the current U.S.-China tensions, I'm concerned that China is not going to really be able to help on the North Korean front. And if they don't even really implement sanctions, that really impacts the effectiveness of sanctions. But as Roman said, in the future, you know, if there's any kind of agreement, we do need China's help. We need China to play a productive role. But overall, it's concerning to me. And I don't know how to get China really on board, particularly since U.S.-China relationship is at such a low point and that tension is likely to continue. Absolutely. China is going to be essential whatever happens here. Before we bring this discussion to an end, let's turn back to the start almost and and think about Moon Jae-in. He's coming near to the end of his presidential term, and he, he obviously made a lasting peace with North Korea, one of his key aims. Thoughts from both of you on him? Is he destined to be seen to have failed in this aim, or is it more nuanced than that, would you say? President Moon made clear that he wanted to launch a process that would be sustainable in time. And I think this is something that could still happen if there is an agreement between the US and North Korea before his term is over. I never thought he would be able to solve the North Korean issue during his five years in office. I don't think his administration thought they could do that. What I do think, though, is that he's going to keep on trying over the next year. And it will really depend on on North Korea at this point, I have to say. I don't think it will depend on on him. Maybe 2018, 2019, he could have done more. But I do think that at this point, it's up to North Korea. Do they want to restart a process with his administration? Or do they want to wait for the next one? And that's something that, frankly, we don't know. It would make sense for North Korea to try to reach an agreement with the U.S. while Moon is in office, because clearly he wants this. You know, if there's a change in government, not only a conservative government in Korea, but maybe another liberal president that doesn't make North Korea so much of a priority, this could be detrimental to North Korea. So at least he could try to reach some sort of agreement with the U.S. and South Korea before Moon leaves office. And then afterwards, we could have a process that continues in future administrations. That's a relatively optimistic <laughs> assessment, Sumi. What about you? <laughs> you share that? So let's end it with a little bit of pessimism <laughs> because we are talking about North Korea. I do agree that it depends on North Korea. So for President Moon, with less than a year left in, in the office, of course, there's a sense of urgency to make a breakthrough with North Korea. 
but it's not up to President Moon. It's up to North Korea. And we just talked about how North Korea so far has been relatively quiet, which means that their inaction suggests that they are at least in a wait and see mode. But I have a feeling that, you know, they are going to return to their form. Sort of the status quo will continue for now because we don't have either side wanting to make first move. U.S. has said the sanctions are going to remain in place. So who's going to come first? And then there's this COVID factor. They don't want to even meet with people. So I think time is running out and the impasse will continue. They will not go to Tokyo Olympics, which means that opportunity is not there to have some sort of excuse to meet. And then if they do return to a campaign of provocations, testing campaign, because in their mind, they think, okay, they increase their leverage. So that's not a good sign because President Moon has already a year left in the office. And from Kim Jong-un's perspective, you know, there's always Beijing Olympics as another opportunity. So I'm not overly optimistic that we're going to be able to make a big breakthrough. And I would even further venture to guess that the Biden administration knows this when they came out with North Korea policy. They know this when they said that they're not going to lift sanctions and sanctions here to stay and the ball is in North Korea's court. To me, even this North Korea review, this policy review that came out, is more of a hoarding action while the Biden administration also deals with a number of other pressing priorities. And there are many besides North Korea. Well, thank you. And thank you, both of you. Some optimism, some pessimism there, some fascinating thoughts on what the path forward could be from both of you. So thank you so much for your time and for your contributions today. We at Asia Matters love to hear from you out there. You can contact us. We have a website, www.asiamatterspod.com. You can contact us on Twitter at Asia Matters Pod. You can contact us by email as well. I'd like to say thank you very much to both our guests again. Thank you so much to Rebecca Bailey, our producer for this episode, and also to Alexander Lestrange again for the music for Asia Matters. Thank you most of all to you for listening, and I hope you'll join us again next time. Thank you and goodbye.